Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Alex Bridgman and this is Think Like an Owner. This show is an exploration on acquiring, operating, and growing small companies through conversations with business owners and private investors. You can learn more and stay up to date on this podcast, our weekly newsletter, and print publication, The Operator's Handbook at alexbridgman.com. And follow me on Twitter at AEBridgman. And if you like the show, please leave a review and tell a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. Before the episode, I want to tell you really quickly that we are running an audience survey to learn more about our audience and look for feedback on improving the show. The last one we did was September 2021, and this show has just about doubled since then. So it's a good chance for us to get more feedback and learn how our audience has changed since then. It's really quick. It's a Google form. It only takes two minutes. There's a link in the description for this episode. And I really hope you can fill it out because it's really, really helpful for us to get feedback on the podcast and how to improve. And it's kind of interesting. There's not really a great natural way for you as a podcast listener to give us feedback. With an email newsletter, you can hit reply or find the author and reach out that way, which you can do on the podcast. But there's not any real personal information that you're telling iTunes or Spotify or whatever podcast platform you're listening on about you. No one is asking you for your LinkedIn or your job role or what have you. And so surveys are the best way we have to learn more about our audience as a podcast. So real quickly, it's only two minutes. It's a Google form. It should be in the description. I really appreciate you sharing your feedback and helping us improve the show. Thank you. And now on to the episode. This is the third and final episode in our three-part series on Chenmark, a highly successful small business holding company founded in 2015. Today, they've acquired 11 operating companies, completed 30 acquisitions, including add-ons, and have over 600 employees today. This third episode takes a deep dive on their CEO recruiting function and what has to happen to keep Chenmark on their growth trajectory. We discuss their GVP program, where they recruit young, hungry leaders to eventually be placed in CEO roles, their GA function for associate-level recruiting, and earning the right to take risk and what that means for them today. I hope you enjoyed this third part in the series with Trish and James Higgins. One of the most impactful things our CEO guests have talked about doing for their companies is upgrading their finance team. Ravix Group, led by CEO and former podcast guest Timmy Oka, is the expert you need to build a scalable finance function. They handle everything from factional CFO work, HR consulting, and outsourced accounting. Ravix can even help your company prepare for an IPO, if that's an ambition of yours. To get in touch with Timmy and Ravix, go to ravixgroup.com and tell them Think Like an Owner sent you. And now for some advice and observations for finance and small companies, here's Timmy himself to share his expertise on today's Q&A. So there's a lot of companies right now focused on managing costs and conserving cash and making sure their cash planning ensures they'll survive the next couple of years. What kind of advice do you offer clients right now in regards to cost and cash management? Right. So expense management is um, not a core function of ours, but because our staff, typically controllers, are really intimate with the customer's financials, we're able to give them a good idea of where they could improve their costs. So one of the things that we like to look at is, particularly in areas where we have partnerships, for example, payrolls, benefits, things of that nature, what are your cost profiles and are you getting the best rates? Similar to our relationships with banks, we have you know endless relationships with these service providers and we're able to pass on those savings to our customers. So oftentimes, the right solution for our customers is to move to a vendor that gives them you know, better pricing, and we're able to enable that as well. The second part of that is just enabling better visibility into the existing state of the, of the company's cash. And so one of the things that we've been doing much more recently, uh, much more frequently, excuse me, is 13-week cash flows. So helping to forecast what the cash looks like in the short term, just to make sure the company has a good handle on where the outflows are going to be and to make sure they're properly prepared when that happens. 
And then lastly, just more, I guess, uh, supervision in terms of budgets and making sure we do budgets versus actual. So we've been helping a lot of our clients put into place a budget. And then every month, we will prepare the budget versus actual and then review, the, review that with them to, to make sure if anything is going off track, then we can correct it you know, as soon as possible. Just generally, I would say in this environment, better stewardship of the business has been more important, whereas previously folks were more focused on growth. So that's what we've seen. Excellent. Thank you, Timmy. To learn more about Ravix Group, head to their website at ravixgroup.com and tell them Think Like an Owner sent you. I also want to thank our other show sponsors, Hood & Strong, Oberly Vista Strategies, and Oakborn Advisors for supporting the show. And now to the episode. Thanks for coming on the podcast for our third part of the episode series here. It's been a lot of fun. I think for today, it'd be fun to dive into what Chime Mark is going to do to grow and scale further. And then a little bit of some of the people and talent programs that you've had, which are pretty interesting and unique in many ways. But I think there's there's one concept I'd love to you know start with, which is something you've coined earlier about earning the right to take risk. And I'd love to hear how has your, given that you're, you know, about what, seven, eight years into Chenmark now, how do you feel like your perspective on earning the right to take risk has changed? Like, do you feel like you've earned the right to take some risk? Like, what, what's been your recent perspective on that idea? Well, I'll tell just the origin of that, where we got that saying. We actually work together before I went to business school, sort of randomly at a macro hedge fund. And I learned a lot from my boss. We both did. And he had a lot of experience in trading and managing portfolios and stuff like that in a lot of different contexts. And his philosophy on sort of trading was that you start off the years, the year trying to just make singles. And that once you build up you know, a decent return for the year. So say you're up 10% on the year, then that's when you can start making bigger and bigger bets because you sort of, in his words, you've earned the right to take some risk. So when you really don't want to take risk when you're down and you don't want to take risk when you're at zero, because that's when you can really lose everything. But if you've built up a cushion, you take some risk, you know, sometimes that can work really well and your 10% year can go to a 40% year. But if you take some risk and you're already up 10 or 15 or 20%, then you kind of are back down at zero, a little below zero, and you're not dead. You just kind of have to build back up from there. And so that's something that we both internalized in terms of thinking about risk-taking. And so when we started Chenmark, you know, there's a, a tendency in for people to you know look at a deal and only see the upside or put a lot of debt on it or think there's going to be tremendous growth and no you know, growth in operating expenses, all those sorts of things. And the way we applied earned the right to take risk at Chenmark was you know, at the beginning of Chenmark, we're really just trying to hit singles. We're trying to be conservative with our underwriting, not use a ton of debt, assume basically no growth. And so that over time, we can hit a bunch of singles. We can build up sort of a base on which we can start to take some more risk. So that's sort of the background of that concept and how we've applied sort of some of our learnings in the you know, hedge fund space to thinking about building a portfolio of small businesses, which I think has served us very well so far. If anything, we've probably been too conservative in some cases and we've missed out on opportunities where maybe we should have paid a little more for something or 
you know, now that interest rates have gone up, I feel like we should have taken out more debt and locked it in at lower rates. But I think so far that mentality has been good for setting the, the, a strong foundation for Chenmark. Do you want to talk about kind of how we're thinking about? Yeah, I mean, I think d- depending on sort of how flexible you want to be with your thinking, there's a, there's a number of different ways to apply the, the general concept to individual company operations or to sort of the the overall like Chenmark ecosystem. And at the individual company level, I, I think the way that kind of manifests for us is just is a very strong emphasis on getting things right and, and really understanding deeply sort of like the single transaction level of any given business. So before you're really shooting for aggressive growth of any sort, you know, our, we want to make sure that we have a very, very good understanding of how the core business works. And if there's any improvement that needs to be made, that we're making that before we're pursuing any type of sort of future growth agenda. To be honest, in that, with that frame, I think that will be a feature of how we look to operate businesses indefinitely. So there's less of a earning the right to behave in a different way and more just sort of a baseline for how we want to think about the sequencing of getting to know a new business that we acquire and how we want to operate that going forward. Sort of generalizing to more of the macro, you know, it's interesting. I think the the benefit of sort of the holding company structure and owning a number of companies now is that over time, assuming you know you, you run the companies well, there's sort of a natural sort of deleveraging effect, and and you sort of benefit from the strength of the overall enterprise. And so what that means is that on a on an individual transaction basis, you can maybe be a bit more aggressive from a capital structure perspective for new acquisitions while leaving the sort of summary metrics from a holistic perspective actually quite conservative. So I would say that as we've grown and as we've had more companies perform well, that sort of earned us the right, so to speak, to be a bit more a bit more aggressive in our structure, especially in our structuring, less so in our valuation, but more in our structuring for new acquisitions, but it doesn't, if you were to look at it holistically, it doesn't really look like, you know, taking big, bigger swings than we've ever taken before. We're kind of managing to a fairly consistent, pretty consistent sort of global leverage level over time. I was listening to Will Thorndike's recent episode on Invest Like the Best. And one thing you talked about was a lot of serial acquisition entrepreneurs will acquire slowly in the early years. And then kind of, as you alluded to, they'll slowly accelerate as they get more comfortable and learn their playbooks and have a smooth acquisition process. Do you feel like with the idea of having more control or flexibility with your structuring, do do you think that would also lead to accelerated acquisitions and other processes might become quicker or change in someone if you're you're more flexible now with structuring. Yeah, I think that's. I mean, I'll, I'll sort of answer quickly, and Trish, you can add in. But I, I do think that is sort of a natural feature of just even just the basic compounding math, where if your goal is to make sure you are reinvesting the capital that you generate internally, you know, as it's being produced, so you're not having a large drag associated with uninvested cash. 
there is a natural acceleration of the deal process. And so then really the challenge, the sort of challenge or, you know, challenges to think about, all right, what processes need to be scaled, refined, improved, et cetera, to make sure that we are able to execute on a higher frequency sort of deal or sort of or reinvestment cadence. And I, so I think we often sort of talk about it in, in deal terms, but that also is real, you know, can mean reinvestment in the existing companies. But I think the point is, as you have more companies generating more capital for reinvestment, having places to put that and making sure that that sequencing is relatively efficient is a key part of it. And so making sure all the different pieces of that, right, from sourcing to execution, making sure all that is calibrated to the, the pace at which you want to operate now, but also is, is improving so that you can ramp that as your capital ramps is, is kind of a key, key thing that we're, we're pretty focused on. You mentioned like that compounding just naturally leads to an acceleration of acquisitions. What does that look like from a team composition side? Do you need to, is there, are there ways to expand capacity with, you know, beyond just headcount growth that you've started to refine and learn how to do? Yeah, so I'd say three big buckets. So you have kind of what I will call like organic reinvestment opportunities in the existing businesses. So, hey, are there ways to deploy capital sort of outside of a, of a transaction that can represent interesting reinvestment opportunities and sort of high return on capital options? Second would be tuck-ins for existing businesses. So, you know, are there ways to expand the franchise of something that we already own? And then third would be kind of new quote unquote platform deals where we're getting involved in new industry or potentially getting involved in the same industry, but in a totally different geography where it makes sense to establish a wholly separate subsidiary. So of those three, the first two are lower frequency, but have less of a burden on the sort of talent and in sort of the, the team kind of growth dynamic. So if you can find an opportunity to reinvest in one of your existing companies organically, you, know, you might need additional bandwidth sort of below the CEO level to manage whatever that project might be. But you're not sort of having to go through the process of setting up a, like a, a new leader. On the tuck-in side, same kind of concept. And so from a, from a team scaling perspective, I think really what we're mindful of is how much of the capital we have to redeploy is being redeployed into wholly new operating businesses that require like an entirely new management team because those are what really consume a lot of like operational talent essentially. And then just in terms of how do we think about managing growth of Chenmark from a, like an oversight overhead perspective, we don't really like having a lot of overhead at our sort of quote unquote HQ in Portland, Maine. We've already moved offices three times. And since I somehow am the person that's responsible for that, I would prefer us to never move offices again. <laughs> we sort of, we like the idea of every business that is in the, the Chenmark network, you know, could be cut off from Chenmark and exists perfectly fine on its own. And so all of the work is done by the businesses. You know, we don't have anything centralized in terms of, you know, billing procedures or anything like that. Anytime we've tried to centralize things, 
we have tended to realize sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly that that is a mistake and push it back to the companies to, to handle. So in terms of supporting our growth at HQ, we have some, you know, one person in HR, one person in marketing, a couple people in technology to support the businesses. And then from a search perspective, you know, we don't have a search team or a deal team. You know, James Palmer and I are the deal team, but we also people that are coming in for our CEO and training program called the GVP program, they essentially do search when they are in the office. And so you know, that does mean that we have probably some fits and starts to our search process and that it's potentially not yielding as much as it would if we had you know, a dedicated you know, team of people who were doing that all the time. But for us, there's a lot of reasons why we've, we've set it up that way, which we can go into. But we have found that we don't need to be finding 10 businesses or 20 businesses a year to buy. And so we've been able to balance sort of the number of people who are coming in the CEO program sort of helps balance out the number of companies that we're looking for. So we don't really foresee that changing too much, sort of regardless of how much Trimark grows. Do you have a rule of thumb or sense for what percentage of reinvestment you want to be at your current companies versus in new platforms? And if it's lower in one area or the other, then it's maybe a key or a you know, a clue that something is a mess, that something should be, there should be reinvestment opportunities being identified in one place or the other. So kind of two things to highlight there. First, very, very consistently, when they come up, the opportunities to redeploy capital either into like organic expansion opportunities or into into tuck-in type sort of inorganic growth opportunities at our existing businesses represent much higher returns than much higher return opportunities than new platforms. So all else equal, if, if it could be 100% in our existing businesses, that would be great. I think one of, the reality is those opportunities are not unlimited and, and often quite small. The opportunity set is quite small. So making sure that we are engaging in the search process and having sort of a robust opportunity set associated with other acquisition opportunities is, an, is sort of an important thing to make sure the our reinvestment opportunity set on the whole is compelling. So yeah, so that that uh, that's kind of the the guidance I'd give there. The other piece that's really important to to highlight is that not every company has reinvestment opportunities, and that's really not a problem for us. So I think we've spoken a lot before on this sort of bait shop concept, where some companies that have big scale opportunities and ability and an ability to consume large amounts of capital over a long period of time and for, for whatever reason. You have other companies that have a little bit of a captive, sort of a, a dominant market presence for whatever reason it may be. And as a result, those companies can generate very high earnings without really an opportunity to redeploy that capital. And so those end up being generally very high cash generating businesses for us, but with, without a lot of re- reinvestment needs. And so those end up being great sort of funding mechanisms for the business, the other businesses that we own that tend to be larger consumers of capital. So for us, we're not really, it's not a pressure thing where we're saying like, hey, you know, unless they're, you know, why aren't you uncovering more 
free investment opportunities, it's more sort of evaluating what the dynamics of that particular business happened to be and kind of calibrating how we think about reinvestment accordingly. Yeah. On the search side, you mentioned that given it's a, a rule the three of you share, there can be some fits and starts. Does that mean that you're, you're investing in new platforms is more opportunistic and less of we have themes in these different industries and we're going to have you know, specific strategies towards each of them? Or am I perhaps I'm missing something there too? I'd say we're fairly opportunistic. I mean, we do look for opportunities in fields that we already have you know, a presence, both either an industry presence or a geographic presence, but we look at all sorts of things. So, and by fits and starts, it, I mean mostly that, you know, if you talk to someone who's just out doing a search, you know, they're, all they're doing all day is searching and they're sending out like a million emails a day and they have like 17 interns and like it's a whole thing. By fits and starts, I just mean more that, you know, realistically, you know, we might have a couple people in the office in our GVP program who are, you know, doing some outreach or connecting with owners. And we've never really been in the camp of spamming businesses. So, but we would, we would have people sort of working on deal sourcing, but then they take an opportunity in one of our businesses, which is ultimately where we want them to be. And then maybe it's, there's only then one person in the office that's really focusing on that. And then, you know, maybe we don't have two other people starting until a couple months later. So it just kind of ebbs and flows in terms of how many people are actually sitting in the seat focusing on that work at any given time. So sometimes it can feel like we've got a lot of people focusing on it and then they all leave to work in the businesses. And then for a couple of months, nobody's working on it and then it fits, you know, starts up again. So it's, it's just a nature of, we don't really want to have a full-time deal sourcing staff on payroll. So that's just sort of the way things are for us at the moment. So what's the reason behind that? I can imagine at least one person full-time focused on deal sourcing could be helpful in many ways, but what's been your experience with that role and not having someone full-time? Well, in our experience, we haven't had any issues finding deals, doing it the way we've been doing it. And so our issue has been much more on finding the right people to run the businesses for the long term. And so we have found that, you know, prioritizing that is more important than having people full-time deal sourcing. You know, if we did ha- if we had a problem finding deals, we would adjust our approach, but so far for the number of deals we're looking for for, you know, our setup at this moment, it hasn't been a, a pain point, so we haven't had a need to change it. Now, I will say that looking forward, that may need to change as, again, things scale and things accelerate, we have more capital to deploy. We may have you know people that are more full-time dedicated to search, but at the moment, it hasn't been a problem we've needed to solve. I, I think, yeah, to, to expand on that, I, I think it kind of comes back to the pace question that we, we, we talked about at the beginning. So thus far sort of having the natural governor on search activity associated with people moving on to other roles in the business and like that that actually has created an interesting gov- like kind of governor on sourcing which has actually made our deal opportunity set actually stay roughly in line with our capital and talent which has been somewhat helpful i think as things accelerate 
we will need to make sure that the deal sourcing is appropriately calibrated with the other two legs of the stool. And so it probably will make sense at some point to be permanently staffing some people in, in that sourcing role. I, I think the other piece to highlight is just a kind of a hierarchy of import, importance thing for us internally. So to Trisha's point, in general, for, for whatever reason, we've, we've been able to find interesting opportunities to deploy capital fairly consistently over our history. But I, so, and, but I think for us, the, the, the much more important factor has been and probably will always continue to be the performance of our businesses and their ability to generate free cash. So when we hire somebody new into our leadership development program, about 50% or maybe even more of someone's time in, in that role is spent focusing on search and the, in the deal process. And then you kind of graduate into more and more operationally focused roles until you sort of ultimately sit in the CEO seat. Our bias, basically from day one, has been to, as soon as we identify talented people who can do the job and are a great cultural fit, our goal is to get those folks into operational seats where they can be adding tangible value to our companies and contributing to the cash flow generation process as, as quickly as possible. So I think we're okay with a little bit less high-frequency sourcing activity. So we're, we're okay with a few fewer outreach emails going out. If that means we have talented people in seats where they are actually helping our companies generate positive outcomes. And so that's the trade off we've been willing to live with. Growth may create stress on that that we'll have to adjust to, but I think that's how we've been, that's how kind of philosophically we've set things up. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. The GVP program is pretty interesting and one that we've alluded to in you know, earlier episodes in the series too. Um, would love to just dive into it directly. It sounds like it's been becoming formalized over time, but generally the idea is to get young people into your different companies and then find the right operating roles for them. What kinds of problems early on with the program or the th that style of finding a young up-and-comer and bringing them in, what kind of problems were you looking to solve and that this has begun solving for you? Sure, I'll, I'll, I'll kick that off. A couple of years ago, we were leading looking for new companies to buy. And we realized, you know, we primarily work with these smaller businesses that have owner operators who are looking to retire. And there were a number of deals that were great, but we couldn't execute them because we had nobody to take over. And we learned the hard way that, you know, just putting an ad up on whatever Indeed or ZipRecruiter for a CEO of a small business doesn't really work very well, especially because you need... For us, you know, we need people who are like a really good culture fit or very long-term oriented, you know, and kind of really fit with a specific set of Chenmark values that it's very hard to just screen for that in a couple of conversations in a CEO, you know, for higher setting. And so we realized that for us to be able to grow, and I give James a lot of full credit for this, you know, in thinking about how do you create the, the systems that we need to support our growth we needed to sort of take a step back and be able to recruit people to come work for us, learn our culture, learn our values, how we kind of like to do things, work their way up in the business. And then those are the people that can become CEOs for us. So 
you know, the challenge really was we had companies that we thought would be good opportunities, but we had no one to run them. And so we needed to take a step back and figure out, you know, how do you solve that problem in a ongoing way, as opposed to just an ad hoc kind of, oh, maybe this person could run it, maybe not. So it, it was a little haphazard for a little while there, but then we started saying, okay, this is formally the program. And I have to give the, the people who joined up for the program first, second, and third person, you know, there was no program. And so they really helped us create it and the experience. And, you know, so far we've been very pleased with it and it's generated a lot of momentum and it has been really good for us. I think that's a key, well, a couple of things. I think at the sort of going back to, I mean, we really kind of, thinking through a lot of this in sort of 2017, 18, 19, kind of that time frame, and, and sort of two combined things. One, really some, some pretty challenging experiences with what I'll call sort of like hired gun CEOs. So, and a lot of that is a byproduct of the, the time pressure of the, of the deal process itself, particularly in a small business context. So you work really hard to get a company under LOI. It's very difficult to recruit a CEO pre-LOI because is and anyone who's involved in small business MA knows like there's a lot of uncertainty. I mean there's a lot of uncertainty post-LOI, but there's certainly a bunch sort of pre-LOI as well. So pretty weird to recruit for a CEO pre-LOI. And then post-LOI, you're trying to get the get the thing closed, you know, ideally in 90 days or less. So that creates a pretty condensed window to post-job ad, run through whatever recruiting process you want to run through, establish cultural fit and, and sort of evaluate all the relevant skill sets. So, and it's hard to walk away from a deal. Like if you've got a person in the pipeline and a deal that's about to close, you can explain away a lot of things because you just want to get the deal done in that, in that right. moment. And it's hard to be objective and realize, you know, there's no point in owning a business if you don't have a good person to run it. Like full stop. It's hard to really feel that in the moment. So yeah, so we'll call learning. What is experience is what you get. You don't get what you want. So a lot of experience picked up kind of trying that not one, but a couple of times, like several times, all unsuccessfully. So that's kind of the down the downside piece. And then the upside piece is honestly like to basically like cover our mistakes. Palmer originally, and then Trish as well, jumped into operating roles at our companies and knocked the cover off the ball. They've both been sort of 1A and 1B for our like most successful CEOs. And so now you're starting to say, wait a minute, like neither of them had CEO experience. They fit the profile of the general sort of GVP avatar that we're looking for. But you know, there, there, there's a limited supply of 10 mark partners to keep the overall ship running and also to operate our businesses. So we're, we were kind of, we're kind of thinking, all right, how can we do more of this while avoiding a lot of the big mistakes that we've made? And, and so that's really what kind of led us to think about, all right, how should, like, let's take a step back. How can we systematize this in a way that's scalable and repeatable and all those different things? So that's what we did. I mean, and, and I think kind of the, the other thing I'll say, and that this is not unique to the GVP program, but a lot of our, quote unquote progress looks organized and thoughtful sort of after the fact as we figured it all out. But in the same way that like a lot of like holding company structures look organized and thoughtful, like once you actually have five companies and all these different systems set up, 
But I think for us, it wasn't like we like went away and thought deep thoughts in some room and then came out of this like retreat with like a fully formed view of how all this should work. We tried to hire one person. And, you know, at that point, we weren't even calling it the GVP program. We were just hiring a, a guy, <laughs> like a finance and operations, you know, whatever, vice president or something. So a lot of it was saying, hey, like, we know we need help here. Let's get someone on board and, you know, iterate from there. And so, and, and I think that's representative of a lot of how we've grown over time is sort of figuring out where our pain points are, taking, kind of minimum viable product type steps in those directions and kind of iterating and improving from there. And then generally over a a period of months to years, what evolves is something that looks a little bit more like a formal, thoughtful program. But I think if we were being totally honest, it doesn't necessarily start that way. Yeah, I can imagine. When you think of the top of funnel for the program as it stands today, plus all the experiments you've done with... You mentioned Indeed maybe not being the best source, but where do you find are good areas to search for those GVP type folks that you're looking for? So, I mean, business schools is a very natural place because people are looking for jobs. And, you know, especially schools where there's a search fund slash ETA presence in those schools where people are vaguely aware of the concept. They might have taken a class. A lot of the classes at business school have a ton of interest from students because I think it's tapping into a lot of students' desires to do something a little different or just have a, a different experience, essentially. But then I believe the conversion ratios of, you know, if you have whatever 90 kids in the class, you might have one or two actually do a search. So... Specifically, doing a traditional search is a very unique path, and it speaks to some people that say, that's exactly what I want to do. There are other people who are generally interested in the space that they don't want to do an exact search. And and those are generally the people that our story kind of at our program resonates the most with. So certainly business schools and just having postings on the job boards, being present at career fairs, doing being on panels or doing chats or coffee chats or whatever, just having a presence, make sure people know that, that we exist as an opportunity is sort of where we are at the moment there. And then there's a ton of people out there who are sort of mid-career. Maybe they could have gone to business school, but they didn't. They chose to stay in their jobs and they're just looking to do something a little different. And or, they, or they went to business school, go back about search, yeah. decided to do something more corporate but always had in the back of their head, hey, you know, something it's an interest. Yeah. yeah. And so those are people who reach out to us from all different types of backgrounds and look, geographies, honestly, looking to be part of the program. And th- there's no sort of... For us, there's no one perfect background or anything. There's you know, We've had the privilege of meeting with a lot of small business owners and they all have different backgrounds and skill sets and personalities. And we have all sorts of different businesses that require different types of skills. You know, we, we have, you know, some businesses that require more of a a sales focus in the leadership role, you know, other ones that are more sort of data analytics kind of focus and kind of everywhere in between. And so we, I think have a pretty wide filter at the top 
I'm sorry, wide funnel at the top for people coming in from all sorts of different backgrounds and life experiences and everything. Because we're ultimately trying to decide, you know, do we think this person could be a, a good long-term CEO of a small business that can take about a million different shapes and sizes. And so try to keep that very broad, you know, business schools, a lot of word of mouth, a lot of people hearing about us on podcasts, a lot of people sometimes get our newsletter and, and get to know us that way. But for us, it's just about having as many touch points out there as we possibly can so that people just know that we are an option for them if that's something they want to learn more about. So once you get people in that top of funnel and you get to a point where you're now interviewing a candidate directly, what sorts of questions and characteristics are you looking for, given that they're not going to be put in a CEO job immediately? And even if they're not fit for a great CEO role, they could still be an operator in some other role at a company. What given that there's not like a defined job that you're comparing against, what sorts of questions and filters are you using? Well, I guess I'm, I'm technically on the hiring <laughs> yeah. squad and you're not. So I'll answer the question. So we have a group of people in the company from all different levels of seniority and focuses in the hiring squad called that because I have a strong vendetta against committees. So... <laughs> We're just a group of people who get together frequently to talk about Definitely hiring not decisions. Not a committee. And so... <laughs> so, so, I mean, for, first and most importantly, we, we recruit against core values very definitively. So basically everyone on the hiring squad is evaluating candidates sort of against, against the core values, first and foremost. So that, that's kind of part one. I would say there, there's two other really kind of like three, three other big pieces that, that we're paying a lot of attention to. One is what I'll call like speed of conceptual understanding. So if you look at a business or you're evaluating a certain situation, are you able to not just understand what's going on in that particular moment, but, but can you distill that to first principles or like the underlying mental model so that you can take whatever the core concept is and apply it to an unrelated situation that comes up in the future? So, you know, we, as we talked about, we're generalists. We bought, we invest in lots of different companies, lots of different industries. So, in a lot of cases, we're getting involved in new things that we have no exposure to previously. So, it's really, really important that up and down the organization, we are we are cultivating an ability to get up the learning curve very quickly in in new spaces. So, that's kind of part one. If we kind of summarize that and saying like, hey, how well can how well do you understand something or how quickly can you get up the speed in a, in a new area? Second part of that is, that's great. You understand it really well. Now we need to figure out, like, are you good at explaining that to a third party who may not have the same educational background, life experience, sort of management capability, etc.? So can you then distill what you, what you know in a way that allows you to explain it ideally simply to your peers, your, the team that's reporting to you, an external third party, so on and so forth. So we call that kind of clarity of expression. And then the third piece would be like a, a pretty strong focus on what I'll call like, you call it grit, call it resilience, call it mental toughness. But sort of the bottom line is small business is messy, things happen, both positive and negative. But especially for the, for the negative stuff, we need to be identifying people who can handle stress and 
you know, sort of deal with that and keep moving forward. Yeah. So anyway, those are the th- those are things that I'd highlight. And I'd say by the time people get to an actual interview, they've completed a case study that sort of it just sets a baseline for analytical skill set. So being able to think about, you know, take incomplete data and form an opinion is important in the CEO role. And but that's something that sort of has been screened for before you know they're coming in for an in-person interview. Gotcha. And then once they're in the program, they've been accepted and they're now in an operating role somewhere or with Chemark directly, what kind of ongoing screening and learning and observations are you doing with that person? Sure. So just to be clear, everyone comes through sort of the, the Portland office as a first step. The timing varies quite a bit, but everyone comes through Portland first and then on to an operating role at one of our existing companies before taking on a CEO role, either at an existing company or, or more often at new acquisitions. In terms of ongoing evaluation or whatnot, there's a, a variety of different things, but I would say you're not sort of giving a formal test, but you're making sure there's a diversity of kind of work product that that person is, is coming across, especially in their early experience in Chenmark. So... As, as we mentioned, the, the, all the people at the first stage of the program at the GVP stage are, are very involved in search. So there tends to be a number of opportunities to evaluate a potential acquisition, both quantitatively and qualitatively. So those are opportunities to learn and provide feedback on what's good, what's bad, what needs to be refined, etc. There are also opportunities to get sort of exposure to our existing companies on all sorts of different projects. So those are opportunities to both to evaluate the individual person, but also for those people to start building relationships with other people throughout the organization. What I'd say is there's not like our, our daughters just started taking jujitsu. So we're, we're sort of top of mind of like, Oh, or like gymnastics or something. So you have like you train, you train, you train, and there's like an evaluation opportunity and either you like earn the little stripe on your belt or not. That's very much like not the, not the drill at Chenmark, it, it, what we tend to find is if we've done everything well on the front end of the recruiting stage, to be honest, it's like quite obvious very, very quickly that someone has the goods to be a very effective contributor to the team. So, you know, there's not a lot of like prescriptive evaluation that we're doing. I mean, we're just main- spending time with them. Like yeah, we're, we're mean, together, we're interacting with them constantly in small and big ways. You know, it could be you know, something, you know, there, there's the actual content, but then there's just some of the, the softer skills about does the person put their dishes in the dishwasher or do they help their colleague out if they're going to get a coffee? Are they asking anybody if they want one? You know, just like the little, the little things like, is this person a good teammate? You see, we have a very small office. We're all together. We see things. Are there any types of characteristics or behaviors you're looking for to determine if this person would be a good CEO versus some other non-CEO role? Is there any one thing or maybe not one thing, but like a handful of things that make for a good CEO? But if you're if you're missing these things, it's, it's going to be less likely to be successful. If we don't think somebody will ultimately become a CEO of a Chenmark business, we will not hire them into the program. That said, we do understand that given people's backgrounds, 
some people might take them longer to become a CEO because maybe they haven't had a certain type of professional experience. They need to, you know, have that to round out their skill set. And so, hey, you know, may, this person might take a couple of years or whatever before they're CEO, but we think ultimately they will get there. Then that's fine. But if we're like, hey, you know, this person's a good culture fit, but they're probably not going to, you know, maybe a CFO or COO, we we would pass on that person. So, sort of by definition, if you're in the program, we think that you have the ability to become a CEO. In terms of characteristics, it is a very, very qualitative thing. And again, it comes back to sort of having interacted with a lot of very effective, successful leaders and small business CEOs ourselves. The ability to, you know, a lot of people that apply to the program, if we have a bias, there tends to be a lot of people who would be very, very good CFOs, very good analytical skills. Some of those people and the ones who would be successful in our program have the ability to take analytical skills, but then also translate them, as James was talking about, to a group of people and use that analytical skill set to lead people. If we think that that person can't make that transition, you know, can't ultimately lead people, then that would be something that wouldn't work. Because you have to be able... you You can be introverted. I'm quite introverted myself. You can be very introverted and quiet, but an effective leader. And we have a number of people on our team who are quiet leaders. And I love a quiet leader. So it's not necessarily that you have to come in and be some you know big, boisterous, extroverted person to lead a, a group of people. I really don't think that's the case. But there is a feeling that usually when we're in our hiring meetings, you know, a number of people will either say like, yeah, I think this, this person can ultimately lead a group of people or just be like, I really don't, I can't see people following this person. I just, yeah, I can't see it. And again, very subjective, but comes from having experience with a lot of different leaders in different spaces. I'd say, I mean, all the things that we talked about is screening, screening tools for the GVP program. So the conceptual understanding, the speed of the, the clarity of communication, the resilience and all the core value stuff, like all of that, I mean, the reason we screen for that at the GVP level is because, like, that's we evaluate CEOs in the same way. So, like that, that all is very consistent across the entire organization. I think the other thing I'd add is, is just to summarize, like Trish captured this really, really well in one of the recent Weekly Thoughts articles, sort of being a first-time CEO and sort of how to conduct oneself. But I would say there's like, I'll sort of summarize it by saying it's a kind of a bias for action. So. We tend to, the recruiting process is quite effective at making sure people have the requisite intellectual capability to sort of do the work, right? No, and you know, we're not acquiring extraordinarily complicated businesses. So pretty much everyone we hire, everyone we interview for the most part is like very, very smart. So really the, the question is less about aptitude and more about, I'll call it kind of like bias for action. So like, are you going to show up at the office every day? Are you going to start ideally early? Are you going to stay late? Are you going to sort of be in the... Are you willing to be kind of in the foxhole with your team in a really authentic way? And not because you feel like you have to, but because like you're engaged by that. And so that's like a little bit tough to sort of put like a, 
kind of quantitative rubric around, but in social distress point, it's very qualitative, but there's, there is a kind of this element of, do you want to actually do the work and do you understand what you're getting yourself into? That's really kind of an important piece to make sure that we're identifying. We have found that most people who apply to our program and do well in the interview process have some type of personal exposure to small business. And that's why this opportunity speaks to them. So it's usually either they worked in a smaller business themselves, but very often they had a family member who was, they grew up in a small business. They had an uncle who was a small business owner, a friend's dad or mom or whatever. But those are the people who tend to understand sort of innately what we actually do. Because sometimes people can come in and they find Tenmark appealing because, you know, it's a hold co or they think they can do deals or they like all this sort of stuff. And to be a small business CEO is a lifestyle and it's a lifestyle that appeals to some people and it does not appeal to others. And that's where we find the people who, you know, have a personal experience or have educated themselves on what it is like to actually be in a small business tend to be the ones who do the best in the process. Not always, but usually. What kind of pivots or refinements have you made with the program over the years? Well, the first program was really just, I think I can use his name, Edward. And he just joined us <laughs> because we had an operating role and then we kind of bounced around. So it went from just sort of Edward to, hey, this seems like it's working. We should have... We should call this something. We should call this something <laughs> so that we can get other people in. So I think the first, you know, the biggest stage was when it went from Edward to... <laughs> a program. And that was the biggest refinement. And then James is really the mastermind of the sort of the three stages and and how that would work. Since you put that together, it hasn't really changed from its structure. It has certainly, when it was first put together, we had more probably like initial thoughts on how long each stage would take. And we've had to be adaptable to that as people have come in and some people have been very talented and we realize, you know, we need to get them out of here and into an operating role as quickly as we can, as well as we have opportunities come up and we need people to get into these roles as quickly as possible. So we definitely, things have moved a lot fast. People have moved through the program a lot faster than we originally thought. I think that some of the one thing we certainly have had to contend with was people in that second stage of the program. They're working in a business. There's a, there's a tendency or there's a risk when their people are in that stage of it that they're sort of view it just as a pit stop to something bigger and better and don't necessarily treat that role with sort of as much. You know, or they're sort of constantly saying, oh, well, I have this like Chenmark thing to do. I have to be on a Chenmark call or sort of trying to sort of not fully embrace that second stage as much. That's happened a little bit. And we've, and, and sometimes the CEOs have been a little bit like, okay, well, like, is this person actually reporting to me or are they reporting to James or where do the lines of sort of the, the clarity of response reporting patterns and stuff like that fall. So that's certainly something we've had to be much more 
clear about in terms of people come into the program. When you are in a business, the, C- the CEO is now your boss and you can't be not doing things in the operating company because you have to do some like phantom special fancy thing at Chenmark. And so that certainly has been something that we've really had to focus on and iterate. And then the final thing I think is that when a person takes a CEO role, communicating that that is a, at least a five-year commitment. It's not sort of a, oh, I'll do this CEO thing for you know a year, I'll get bored, I'll move on to the next thing, whatever. I think we do want people to move to, to have opportunities within Chenmark, but we have found that it is disruptive to the companies. If people are sort of there as a CEO and then say like, I want to move and, you know, it's not the best thing for the companies and that's what we have to prioritize. So I think now we're being much clearer with our, you know, our expectations for when you get into that CEO role, what the commitment is, which is something honestly, we just didn't even think of doing when the program first started. And so that's certainly a lesson learned, but they're all sort of things at the margin that we've had to refine and iterate. I'd say like, it, it's not so much like the core structure is basically unchanged. So that part of it's been the same. I'd say there's some things that have sort of some unintended benefits that have popped up that are, that I'll, I'll talk about in one second. And then there's some things that are known friction points that we've had to spend a lot of time managing. So on the unintended benefits piece, like, you know, this was started from day one as a mechanism for training future CEOs. But one of the huge benefits is that you end up getting just a massive talent boost like all throughout the organization as people are plugged into all of our operating businesses. And so I, I think what's the surprising element or the yeah, the surprising element has been the, how quickly people can sort of jump into a new seat at one of our operating businesses and add value in a real tangible way. And that has created, especially as you get GVPs who move through the program and take on CEO roles that has basically like people are creating new operational roles for that will absorb people from the program at that second stage because the like that cohort represents just a very ta- like a very rich talent pool. So I would say the benefits that we've experienced for the run rate operations of our existing businesses has been a huge sort of unintended benefit of the program and the way it's designed. So that, I would say, not necessarily a pivot, but kind of like a surprising sort of outcome. In terms of friction points, the probably three that I'll highlight, Trish brought up a great one. So sort of unclear reporting lines. So if someone's at the GVP, at the first stage, the GVP stage, and say they're working on a deal, but then there's an opportunity at at one of the operating companies to step into an operating role, so that's very clearly an opportunity to step up to sort of make progress toward being a CEO. So oftentimes people will do that, but they have a lot of time invested and frankly interest in the outcome for that particular transaction. And so that that sort of creates creates a system where you know you you may be pulled in a few different directions. And so that's just one example that there's lots of different manifestations of that dynamic, partly just as a result of the fact that we're a small team. And so Whenever someone moves up, there's not immediately a someone to backfill the role that's being vacated. So often, just sort of the frictions associated with being a small growing team mean that people are wearing multiple hats. And 
that is something that we increasingly are trying to sort of think through in an organized way to make sure there's clarity for everybody involved. But you know that there's been there have been some bumps there. Second piece is is managing life logistics. So there are huge cultural benefits in our view of having people work out of the Portland office to start and then move to a, an operating business to get sort of boots on the ground experience and then into a CEO role. It depends a little bit on which companies are involved in that in that transition period, but often it can mean multiple moves, which can can be quite difficult for someone who has a spouse that has a thriving career in his or her own right, and or a young family with school or daycare or you know whatever other commitments might might, might be present. So we've found that that's a friction point, and so we've we are. We try to do our best to help manage that, but it is a it is a pain point that we have to be mindful of and help each individual person work through. And the final thing I'll say is, uh, for a lot of companies, the idea of a very high level person stepping into a senior leadership role with a sort of even if it is at the second stage, often people are staying for a matter of months or maybe even maybe at the at the outside a couple of years, but. Regardless, that's a that's a pretty tight window in small business world where often you can get people in roles for seven, eight, 10, 15 years. And so in a lot of situations, especially businesses that we acquire, you'll find a lot of the senior team has been the senior team for decades. And so the idea of someone stepping into the org chart, adding value, and sort of leaving the... A lot of folks in the office have read this book, Legacy, about the New Zealand All Blacks and... One of their big mantras is leaving the jersey better than you found it. So the idea is that, hey, like you're in the seat for a period of time. You need to leave the seat better than you found it, whether that's this, you know, a sales role or a finance role or whatever it is. But just that dynamic of, hey, this is inherently transitory is new for a lot of people culturally in the business. And so making sure that they're not feeling... That they're feeling that the person who's in that seat is engaged... Is cares about outcomes for them, both not both in the short term, but especially in the medium or long term. We're being mindful of that kind of cultural dynamic is also something that we've had to we've had to focus on. So nothing that requires a, a pivot per se, but those are just areas that require extra attention and thoughtfulness as we're continuing to scale. Yeah, I remember Trish, you came down for SM Bash last year in Orlando and. Perhaps I'm I'm misremembering, but I, I remember you saying something along the lines of you found that in any new acquisition you need to replace the founder in almost every case. Has the GVP program given you more confidence to make those kinds of changes now that you have kind of a base program that's finding, you know, potential new CEOs for you now? Yeah, well, I mean, now we really only work with companies where the founder is looking to retire. So I mean, we have to find a replacement. You know, the CEO, by definition, does not want to be there anymore. (laughs) That the transition has, the transaction has happened. Um, So, yeah, this program has allowed us to come in and present offers for companies that we wouldn't have been able to previously. I want to also quickly touch on the associate programs of the. GVP program is the more established and well-known program, but what's the goal of the associate program? Is it something similar or a little bit different too? Yeah. So, I mean, it started with Austin, <laughs> you know, same thing started with one person and 
we had put up some job posts for summer interns, local colleges. And we, at one local college, we only had one application and that was Austin. And so he got the job. um, And, but he worked for us as a summer intern, but then it was during COVID and he was doing good work. So, and he didn't have anywhere to go. So he came to our office and did some classes online and did some work for us and sort of, you know, we, we got to know him and, you know, he did a great job. And so we offered him a job when he graduated and he was our official first generalist associate, even though we didn't call it at the time, but, you know, he, he worked for us doing analytical work. And then an opportunity came up for him to take over sort of a a bookkeeper slash CFO role at one of our businesses. And, you know, it certainly is a big learning curve for him, but we thought he certainly has the capability to do that. So he took on that role about uh, a year. year Yeah, about a year ago and has been doing that and has been absolutely crushing it. It's awesome to see. And so he, he essentially is on his way to developing the skill set where if things kind of keep progressing, like there's no reason he couldn't be the CEO of one of our businesses. It's just going to take him longer to get there because he has less experience. And so given our experience with him, we said there's an offer as well as we would get people who were applying to the GVP program who weren't quite there. They're a little more junior. And so we said, you know, let's create a parallel program for people who might need a little more seasoning, which effectively just means more time in operating roles in the companies to get some more experience. They eventually, our goal is for them to also sort of become CEOs. There's no reason they can't. And we've gotten some wonderful people who have joined the team who are either right out of undergrad or have you know one or two years of experience, you know, a couple of years of experience post-college and have kind of come across us in one way or another. But, you know, I think we all find that program very exciting and we have a number of very talented people in that program. Yeah, I think going back to the recruiting part of the conversation, you know, you notice that a lot of the things we're filtering for are pretty qualitative. So we're, we're trying to identify sort of character and behavior traits more than we're trying to evaluate, you know, how many functions somebody knows in Excel. And so... You can find people who who fit that the kind of qualitative mold at the undergraduate level or the, at the graduate level, right? And and so the the only difference really is how much sort of technical skill or technical training that individual sort of needs to go through before they're one hundred percent ready to step into a leadership role. So the folks who are, have have come or are going through our our general associate program are very plug compatible culturally with the whole rest of the team. And in a lot of ways would be, unless you were like really digging into sort of a financial model, you know, you wouldn't necessarily be able to tell the difference. So I think, you know, the biggest sort of difference between someone who's a GVP and someone who's a, who's a GA is, is just the time it's likely going to take before they're ready to step into a CEO role. And I think there's, there, to be honest, there's something we haven't really talked about, but it's worth mentioning is we talk a lot about us evaluating the individual but I think a huge part of this is also making sure that that individual is excited and really confident about their ability to execute once they're in the seat. So one of the things that we often find talking to aspiring searchers 
or, or folks who are more at the undergraduate level are saying like, Hey, I'm 22 or I'm just out of business school. And you know, you want me to be a small company. You want me to be a CEO of this business. Like, I don't know if I'm ready for that. So as much as there's, you know, an eval- sort of a, an evaluation piece on our, on our part, it's also about making sure that person can sort of day T minus one can sort of step into that role and be like, yeah, you know what, I'm, I'm excited about this and I'm ready to, to knock the cover off the ball. So sometimes that can, that may take a little bit longer for someone who's a little bit younger. What do you feel needs to continue for continue or change for Chenmark to continue to be successful for the next 10, 20 years or so? Well, continue. I think a lot of the stuff that we've done, we just need to keep doing it and stay focused on doing the next deal well day in and day out, not having any complacency. But I think that also for Chenmark to be successful over the next 10 or 20 years, it means de-emphasizing the importance of James Palmer and I. You know, we are very much focused on similarly, like we want all of our operating companies, you know, you could cut them off and they would be just fine. We are very focused on, we want to be involved with Chenmark, but we don't want Chenmark to be reliant on us. And we don't want to be sort of the center of the culture. We want the GVPs and the companies and everything to be the center of the culture. So the more we can do to bring other people into the decision-making process to sort of push things, responsibilities, as well as like cultural norms throughout the organization and de-emphasize as the, like, this is not the James, Trish and Palmer show. You know, this is Chenmark. And ideally, over the next 10 or 20 years, we become less important and the company, we create systems that allow the company to carry on whether we're involved or not. Couldn't agree more. It's really about, I mean, and this has been a key part of our culture from the jump, but so like team first and everything that we do, our individual ability to directly impact that is just naturally going to go down over time as we have a bigger and bigger team. And so you don't have as much ability to curate culture. And so you need to make sure that we are democratizing that essentially and, and sort of bringing other people, other developing and other, other leaders in the organization and almost like asking people to sort of contribute to the culture forming process in a way that, and I think, you know, to some extent this is happening where, I, hopefully we're creating a, an environment or an ecosystem where the people are genuinely excited to be a part of and are interesting in, are interested in defending as a group, right? So I, I think the more we can make it less about what one of the three of us, Palmer, Trish, or I, do we want this person or not want that person? Is this okay? Is that okay? The more we can have the almost the kind of the group be deciding that, the better we're going to be for long, long term as we continue to scale. I think the weekly thoughts newsletter is approaching 400 issues now. I think it's getting fairly close. I love all the Taylor Swift and Patriots references. All of those are less frequent now, it seems. What gives you, <laughs> what gives you energy in continuing the newsletter and what gets you excited to write, write it each week? Well, I'd say I do most of the writing these days. I enjoy it. I mean, if I didn't like it and it was a slog, we would have ended it years ago. But I enjoy it. I mean, usually for me, it's Wednesday afternoon and 
I just block off some time and get it done. Sometimes it's annoying and it's like, I'm like, uh, where am I going to find the time to write this? Or, you know, it's, it's an additional stressor, but I enjoy the process of thinking about the topic of writing it, of putting it out. It has become a lot easier over the years to actually do it. So the more you do it, the easier it is. For me, it's also a forcing function to consume content. So if you're sort of in your own world, if I'm running a tour business, do I really need to be, you know, listening to whatever podcast or reading Bloomberg or whatever? So it helps for me make me read and consume content uh, broadly. And I also think that it's encouraging because, you know, every week we get people emailing in saying that, you know, they shared this note with their team or this had a big impact on them or whatever. So it is cool to see, you know, hey, my something that we put together essentially kind of for fun, you know, has an impact on people is is neat and, and rewarding in that way. And so it has been a really good way to maintain a network that's larger than just what we do at Chenmark a good way to keep in touch with people and have various sort of touch points. If you know, I, there's a topic that I think one person might like, you can forward it. And I, I think our email gets forwarded a lot. And so at this point, it's enjoyable. So just keep doing it as long as we're having fun with it. Another, there's a holding company friend of mine who forwards your C-Corp reasoning newsletter as a reason for why they chose the C-Corp. So it definitely gets forwarded. I also like the links. It's clearly written by a CEO for a CEO. Like it's not this multiple pair or a multiple page newsletter that takes me 15 minutes to read. It's something I can yeah, kind of read. Nobody reads that. Yeah. It's something I can read fairly quickly. But nobody else reads those things. <laughs> the problem with the long stuff is I always, I flag it to consume later when I have more time and then I don't have more time later. So then it just never gets read until finally like four months later. I'm like, I guess I won't read this one. Yeah, I've I don't I don't have a rule of thumb yet for like how many days a tab needs to stay open on my browser before it gets closed, but it's getting shorter now. I'm looking at James's computer right now, and there is a number of tabs <laughs> open. Yeah, a while, a, a, a long yeah. time. Yeah, <laughs> I always open your newsletter in the browser, so it becomes one of those tabs. But I very quickly get to delete it because I read it quickly, and it's. You've set that expectation that I can read it within three to four minutes and get the idea and then go to the next thing. And it's great. Exactly. Yeah. Huge fan. Please don't change that format. But there's no risk of us writing longer pieces. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. I appreciate that. Thank you both for sharing a little bit more time. This was a really fun series and I always get to, I always enjoy getting to chat with you all. So thank you for sharing a little bit more. Absolutely. Thank you. It was great. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation today. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I also want to thank our show's sponsors, Live Oak Bank, Hood & Strong, Ravix Group, Overly Risk Strategies, and Oakborn Advisors for their support. For full episode transcripts and more information, please visit our website at alexbridgman.com slash podcast.